to the Web3 Prof Podcast. All right, good morning and good afternoon, everyone. Uh, Web3 Prof with you here, Jarrett, um, talking with um, Adam Soltis, who is the CEO and founder of Coinos. Adam, thanks so much for being with me here today. Thanks for having me. So Adam is uh, an interesting guy, been in Bitcoin since 2011, so a long time, and uh, which is pretty remarkable because there's not many people around that have been uh, in Bitcoin before uh, that time or even near that time um, and is involved um, with this this uh, payment processor, and I'm, I will get you to explain it probably more accurately than that, um, called Coinos, uh, and you have a technical back background. So it's it would be super interesting to kind of hear your thoughts, uh, both uh, from a philosophy perspective on Bitcoin, um, and, and also let's get into uh, some of the some of the value add that Bitcoin has. So maybe we'll start off, Adam, by just hearing about um, your background. Like, how did you get into Bitcoin? What led you down this path? Yeah, I was working for the Canadian federal government at the time, back in 2011. I was living in Edmonton, and uh, I think I just came across an article um, somewhere on the internet by a guy named Dan Kaminsky, He's mm -hmm. a security researcher, maybe you might call him a hacker. Uh -huh. He passed away, I think, a year or two ago. But uh, he had written an article where he was he had found Bitcoin, maybe from a Slashdot article or something, and he went to check it out because it's all open source. So he went and looked at the source code and he was trying to find flaws because he was skeptical, like the online money, what is this? It's gonna be some kind of scam of or course. There, it's gonna be breakable, right? So he went to go and try to break it and he found that it was remarkably well-built and he couldn't break it. And everything he thought of to try had already been thought of and had a solution and I guess that led him to write this article saying, hey, this is something interesting. And so I went and checked it out. And I guess, yeah, my my background was in computer science and I was really pushing for open source software for the government that I was working for at the time. I wanted them to adopt Linux and more open source tools instead of paying big contracts to Microsoft or other mm. enterprise software developers. I thought, well, um, you know, this is public money, there's free software that can do the job. And if we support that, then uh, this, the free software gets better and better if it has big users like government and other big corporations. So I was already interested in open source. And I was also learning about uh, finance and investing at the time. I had got a Questrade account to start playing the stock market a bit. And I was learning about you know how banking works and reading uh or watching um sal khan from uh the khan academy he had a series on how fractional reserve banking works mm. and things like this so uh, this was post 2008 you know we had that big financial crisis mm -hmm. and i guess that had spurred me to go and learn a little bit like well what what was the nature of the crisis what what happened why uh why do stocks move the way they do or, you know, how does money work? And so when I found Bitcoin, which kind of combines open source and finance and comes up with this new money system, it was very interesting. Oh, and like I mentioned before we started recording, I was already getting into a little bit of libertarian philosophy, reading Ayn Rand and following Ron Paul and that kind of thing. So 
I yeah. think I was primed. It was like at the intersection of libertarianism, open source, finance. How does a, a libertarian or someone who's exploring the ideas around libertarianism work for the federal government? <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, I was just getting into it as a reaction to... <laughs> oh, I see. It drove you there. Problems I you know, experienced at the federal government. And that's why I was like, oh, <laughs> maybe this uh, big you know, government that takes everyone's money and spends it on all this stuff that I don't agree with. And I think a lot of people don't agree with, um, and has a monopoly on that, you know, taxation and the power to, um, you know, inflate the money supply and all these things that government does. I was, yeah, starting to question that a bit. <laughs> I mean, it's, it is, yeah, that's interesting that you're working for the federal government, exploring the ideas around, you know, uh, you know, I guess, some people look at it as like some level of anarchy when you talk about libertarianism and, and, and certainly probably most libertarians don't look at it that way, but certainly a small government um, when you're there and your job is to probably, uh, you know, really leverage the power of the, of the government. Um, so when you get into Bitcoin, um, how is that, how did that process work for you when you're looking at, you know, getting your first wallet and buying Bitcoin on some exchange? I mean, I'm sure the experience at that point in time was, not super simple, but you're technical, so you may have had, um, maybe you didn't f feel that there was a big barrier to entry. What did that look like to you? Yeah, it was a little bit uh, arcane, esoteric, in the sense that, like, to get into Bitcoin, I had to get onto IRC channels, and I had to create a PGP key. And I don't know what any of these <laughs> things are. <laughs> IRC channel is like an old-school messaging system, Okay. real-time chat. So yeah. I think like uh, Facebook Messenger or something where you're talking to people, but it's a group chat. So you're, mm. you're in a channel with, you know, lots of people on there. There's topics. So, mm. you know, there'd be people talking about programming. There'd be people talking about gardening. There was a Bitcoin channel that someone created. And that's where the Bitcoin community was at the time. There uh -huh. and the, there was a message board, Bitcoin Talk, the forums. But IRC was where, you know, the action was. And there was a channel there dedicated to trading. So if you wanted to buy a Bitcoin from someone, you could do a peer-to-peer -peer transaction. You'd send them PayPal or some kind of money transfer, and they'd send you Bitcoin. And this is totally based on trust at this point, because you could send the PayPal and you may never get the Bitcoin. Right. But they had a web of trust system built. So okay. this is where the PGP comes in. This is a way to have a uh, private key that um, is associated with your identity. So... You have this key and you can sign messages with it. So you can like encrypt an email and that proves that whoever encrypted it was the person with that key, i.e. you. So you register your name and associate it with your key. And then that's like your online identity. So then when you have a bunch of interactions, like say I do a bunch of trades for Bitcoin over the internet with PayPal, people would rate me just like you rate a business, ah. give them a five-star rating or a one-star rating, or like on eBay, you'd yeah. see sellers have ratings, right? So this was a decentralized way of rating different sellers and buyers in the Bitcoin market. And I found a guy who was at the top of the list. He'd done tons of transactions. He seemed reliable. And I didn't put a lot of money in. I put five bucks in to start. So <laughs> I'm sending him $5 on PayPal and he sent me one whole Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> one whole Bitcoin. So five Bitcoins at five bucks when you got in? Yep. That's incredible. Yeah. How does that feel today to you? Did you ever imagine today we're sitting at, let's say $28,000 US dollars. Um, did you imagine it would get to here or even to $69,000 a, a year ago? 
actually, I thought it would happen a lot bigger and a lot quicker than it okay. has. I okay. was, uh, when I first read about it, I thought everyone is going to jump onto this thing. And there's only 21 million coins. You can crunch the numbers. There's a lot of money and a lot of wealth in the world. There's skyscrapers and shipping conta <laughs> container ships and yeah. all this machinery, caterpillars, and you yeah. know, there's a lot of wealth in the world. Yeah. And if there's only 21 million units to represent it, then each unit is going to be worth a lot. Yeah. So even, you know, early in the, the message boards, I mentioned like Hal Finney and Satoshi, when they were still actively posting, they were calling for million dollar Bitcoin back then and saying, hey, you should probably get some because this thing might be worth something one day. And uh, it, it all made sense to me. And, it, and I spent months going through all the posts and I came at it as a skeptic as well, and I had all these questions. What if this happens? This might not work. This might not work. But I found that the community behind it had already addressed everything, uh -huh. and I could just tell they'd they'd gone deep on it and yeah. had figured it out and had solutions. And if there was problems, then they, they had ideas on how to correct them already. So Wow. Did you communicate with Hal or Satoshi? No. You just read stuff that they were posting at that time? Yeah. Uh, do you Actually, think at that point, I think Satoshi had just stepped away a little bit before I got involved. Okay. So do you think Hal is Satoshi? Uh, I'm not sure. I think he's maybe one of the best candidates. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody better? Mm, the only thing I could think is maybe it was him and other people. Okay. Like, yeah. Nick Zabo and Wydai and all the early cypherpunks out yeah. and back. And oh, interesting. Maybe they were teaming up on it, or yeah. maybe not. I don't know for sure. It could have been someone totally different. But Do you think Satoshi is still alive? Uh, I, I doubt it. You doubt it? But I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, nobody's sure, right? Uh, that's what makes this uh, this this an interesting um, topic of conversation. Okay, so uh, that, I mean... It's fascinating. You're the probably the person, uh, you're the earliest Bitcoin adopter that I've ever met. Uh, and so it's fascinating to kind of hear what it was like in the early, early days. We're in Vancouver and we had the first Bitcoin uh, ATM here. Um, what did that mean to you, like when that happened? Yeah, I was, I was there when it launched. Oh, you were? <laughs> yeah. Actually, the guys who installed it, I sold them their first Bitcoins. Oh, wow. Okay. Bitcoiniacs. And uh, we had a, a coin fest, which was kind of like a, an event to celebrate Bitcoin. <laughs> it became an annual thing. Um, it started at that Waves coffee house mm -hmm. there. Um, I set them up to take payments back then. So really? they were using CoinOS to accept Bitcoin payments. You could go and buy your coffee and your brownies and whatever with wow. Bitcoin, even back then. So what? Uh, so let's get into CoinOS then. Um, so what is CoinOS? Tell us, tell us about what is CoinOS and why does it matter? Uh, it's it's a wallet for Bitcoin. So it's uh, it's a web wallet. It's just a website, CoinOS.io. And you can go and register an account there. You just put in a username and password. We don't require any driver's license or home address or phone number or even an email. You can just make up a, a random username and sign up. And then you have a Bitcoin wallet that you can log into from anywhere in the world on the internet. And you'll get an address that you can receive funds into. So if you want to receive a payment, uh, you can give out your address and once you fund the account, either you pay yourself some Bitcoin from another wallet or you earn some Bitcoin by you know, selling your goods and services in exchange for Bitcoin, mm -hmm. 
or you you know buy it on the market or whatever, uh, you get a hold of some Bitcoin in your wallet, and then you can go out and spend it. So we've kind of tailored CoinOS to be both a personal wallet and a merchant wallet. Mm -hmm. And so if you're a business who wants to take in-person payments, like a coffee shop or a restaurant or a barber shop, you can have your CoinOS wallet. Uh, your customer would come in, they would you know, either scan a QR code or just enter in your username and send you a payment. And it'll come through right away. It's instant. It uses a, a new technology for Bitcoin called the Lightning Network. Mm -hmm. So that helps to speed up the payments and make them a lot cheaper than they would have been otherwise. Um, so yeah, it settles pretty much instantly. As soon as someone sends you a payment, you can instantly withdraw it to another wallet or move it to an exchange to sell it or whatever you want to do with it. Or you can just keep it there and watch it grow. So is, um, is the idea that, uh, is the vision behind CoinOS to get merchants to accept Bitcoin as payment? That's probably our main focus. Yeah. Okay. I mean, the ultimate vision is to spread Bitcoin to everyone. Sure. Get it into the hands of people as a, a form of money that you can spend and get it into merchants as a place that you can spend it. But it's always the chicken and egg problem, right? Sure. Like if you talk to a merchant, they say, well, there's not that many people asking to pay with Bitcoin. And if you talk to a user that doesn't have Bitcoin, they, one of their first questions might be, well, where can I spend it? Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, okay, well, we have to develop both. Yeah. And uh, do, do you think we'll see Bitcoin shift? Because right now when people talk about it, they talk about it as like digital gold or store of value. In my opinion, that's kind of like what most people refer to Bitcoin as. Like that's why you would want it. Right. Do you think we'll see a shift where people are willing to spend their Bitcoin? Because I don't really want to spend, if I could spend my Bitcoin everywhere, I wouldn't because I, I want to hold it because I believe it's going to go up in value. Do you think we're going to see a shift where people are actually going to use it um, regularly to, to buy stuff? I do. And I'm really promoting that because, um, you know, you have to spend cash on things, whether you're yeah, you buying groceries, paying your rent. It would be better if we all did that with Bitcoin instead of with uh, credit card taps, because the merchants are always paying the cost for that. They're paying two or three percent to process those credit card payments, and we think, oh, we're getting one percent cash back, or we're getting some loyalty points. So I want to use my card everywhere. Yep. But actually, you know, you got to think. Well. Yeah, you're getting 1% back, but the price of everything is 3% higher because sure. the merchants have to eat that cost. Yeah. So overall, it would be better if everyone used, uh, used Bitcoin. So, so is is the main driver behind people using Bitcoin as a payment form the the fact that it's cheaper? Or are there other benefits in your view as to why, some, why a merchant or a, a buyer uh, would want to use uh, Bitcoin as a payment option? Yeah, cheaper is one thing, but... Um, it also is resistant to inflation and censorship as well. Mm. So if you're wanting to go to another country and spend your money there, you don't have to pay FX fees to convert from Bitcoin to some other currency. It just works anywhere in the world. And when the governments print money and inflate the money supply, then the price of everything goes up, except for Bitcoin. Well, I mean, the price of Bitcoin goes up versus the dollar, but the price of everything relative to Bitcoin is deflationary. It's going to become cheaper in Bitcoin terms over time because Bitcoin can't be inflated. So it's a better savings vehicle. And um, 
as a consumer, like you were saying, why would I ever want to spend my Bitcoin besides just that large level picture of, you know, getting those 3% fees down? Um, you also, you can replace the Bitcoin that you spend, right? So if you were going to spend $100 on coffee that month, why not just buy $100 more of Bitcoin than you're sitting on as a savings or as an investment, have your $100 of spending money and then go out and spend it and then reload the next month when right. you need to get yeah. some more. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's that's probably a valid, a valid argument to those of us who are holding our Bitcoin for brighter future days. It's a little bit more work. Like there is, it's easy easier to just go in and tap your card. Sure. Yeah. But if you want to see Bitcoin adopted and you're invested in Bitcoin and want to see it grow, then it really helps promote it. Mm. If you're out there spending it because that shows the merchants that there's some uptake and it helps to develop the technology that, you know, we can work out the bugs. We can work out what's going wrong with Bitcoin payments. If we get more and more people using it regularly. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. That's a good challenge. I appreciate that. Because, because I think that's what we need to think about. Anybody who's into Bitcoin, you got to think. Well, you know, us using our Bitcoin does help move the needle on on adoption, which is an important part of this. Yeah. When you talk about inflation, uh, you bought one Bitcoin for five dollars when you started in this process, and that five dollars could have bought you, let's say, two coffees today. That one Bitcoin could buy you, I don't know thousands of coffees. And so when we talk about how, you know, Bitcoin doesn't experience um, or, you know, when measured in dollars, Bitcoin uh, is an exceptional asset um, to use to purchase products. Um, Have you been um, in a position where you've been regularly spending Bitcoin um, over the years um, and, uh, and, uh, and personally experiencing the benefits of this? Yeah. Yeah. I spend Bitcoin. I live off Bitcoin now. Like I, I made my investment early. It did really well. And now I, yeah. I quit my day job. I'm cashing out a little bit of the Bitcoin that I bought early on to, to live off of. Mm. So I try to use it as much as possible. And I'll prefer to go to places that take Bitcoin directly right? so that I don't need to first cash it out and then spend the fiat. I'd rather cut, like pay directly in Bitcoin. Yeah. Yeah. What's the user um, experience like if I go to uh, a merchant, uh, a coffee shop or an ice cream shop that accepts Bitcoin as payment? um, Do they need to accept it through CoinOS or can they just accept Bitcoin in general and I can use my CoinOS wallet to buy from them? Yeah. So the latter, they can use any wallet they want. We think CoinOS is a really easy wallet for merchants to get started with, and it has features that are tailored towards that use case, like being able to prompt for a tip and let your customers add a tip onto the amount. And we do reports and things so you can get your your payment history for the week or the month and do some accounting as a business. But yeah, people use all sorts of different wallets and a really good website to go and check is btcmap.org. You can see a map of the whole world and it's a community curated thing like Wikipedia or OpenStreetMap actually is the the thing it's using under the hood, Mm -hmm. which is an open source map that anyone can edit. So the Bitcoin community has put all the businesses that take Bitcoin onto this map and we're trying to keep it updated. Yep. So anywhere you go, you can go and look up, hey, where where in this town can I spend my Bitcoin? Yeah, that's amazing. And with the limitations of the wallet, can I spend my Bitcoin from um, 
you know, my crypto.com account at a retailer? Or do I need to have some type of specific types of wallets out there in order to actually execute a payment? Yeah, so it, um, with our all our CoinOS merchants, they can take either a Lightning payment or a regular on-chain Bitcoin payment. Okay. So you can pay to them from any Bitcoin wallet, and including Crypto.com. But with things like Crypto.com and ShakePay and some of the exchange mm-hmm. apps, coins or, yeah. they'll often have a, a hold time before they actually make the withdrawal. They'll send you an email, say, hey, someone's trying to withdraw, and then you confirm it. And then yeah. half an hour later or an hour later, they process it. And so it's not great for going into a store and buying a coffee because that payment doesn't actually leave your account for an hour or so. Yeah. Um, with CoinOS, it's it's like a hot wallet. like. It, as soon as you press send, it leaves our server, it goes to the recipient. So it's like instantaneous. But there's there's other Lightning wallets like um, Phoenix, uh, Wallet of Satoshi, Breeze, Blue Wallet. There's a number of different uh, apps you can get or websites you can use to use the Lightning network. Mm. And those are all going to be fast. They're all going to you know, have pretty much instant settlement. So any any one of those will work fine. And they're all interoperable. They're all using the Lightning network, which right. is, uh, a standard protocol that they all communicate with so they all know how to speak that language and um, even on-chain Bitcoin you, you know you send a payment it might take 10 minutes mm-hmm. on average to confirm it might take an hour uh, it depends what fee you set so if the network is really busy you might have to pay a four dollar fee just to send that payment and it might take up to an hour to confirm so mm-hmm. You know, that kind of actually put a damper on retail payments back uh, around 2017 when the fee market first started to mm. take off and the blocks started filling up for the first time in history on a consistent basis. That's when merchants like Waves and all the restaurants we had taking Bitcoin payments back then kind of fell off the wagon for a while because it became untenable untenable to do oh, interesting. retail payments. Until because because it was expensive or because it was slow or both? It was expensive for the cons- for the customer. Yeah. yeah. So if they were buying a $4 coffee, their fees might have also been $4 or yeah. something like that. Yeah. Is it, How high did the fees get? Do you I know? I think uh, during the peak, people were paying like $30. Oh, really? Uh, on-chain transactions. Jeez, like Ethereum. Yeah. Interesting. For a while. I'm going to throw that into the Bitcoin Maxi's face when they complain about <laughs> Ethereum fees. <laughs> I didn't know that piece of history, but but Lightning Network has effectively solved that uh, that issue. Yes. And and when did Lightning Network um, really come into the marketplace to to start start making waves like it has? I think it launched in 2018. Okay. On the mainnet. So yeah. It was there was a testnet before that was mm-hmm. like fake money. But um, yeah, it launched in 2018, but it didn't really start to take off until just the last year or two. I would right. Say. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think yeah, maybe two years ago, um, the person that introduced um, me to you is Alex Miller, um, a Bitcoin maxi who's a, who's my neighbor and, and friend. And, and it was really on the context of uh, him telling me, hey, your kids should accept Bitcoin at their lemonade stand. Yeah. And I was, you know, I was buying Bitcoin and stuff, but I didn't know that you could you could do that efficiently. And then he demonstrated the Lightning Network at that time a couple of years ago and, and allowed my kids to uh, to accept Bitcoin uh, for, for Lemonade, which is pretty cool. Awesome. And he is their uh, most, most loyal customer. Um, <laughs> And uh, which, which you know, I think I think part of that comes from, and, and one of my first podcast interviews was with him, and uh, 
so you can listen to that. But but I think a lot of it is is kind of like how you're explaining. If you hold Bitcoin, you should spend your Bitcoin to encourage the usage of Bitcoin as a payment um, as a payment form because uh, it helps kind of move the needle on Bitcoin adoption. Yeah, and that's one of the main selling points we have when we approach a new merchant who's not taking Bitcoin is that we have this strong community here and we are all going to prefer to shop at you versus your competitor if you take Bitcoin. So that's one of the, you know, the leading points mm. we give them to tip them over from, you know, just being on the fence to, okay, I'll give it a try. Yeah. Is it's going to bring all this new business my way. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the more of us there are and the more economic force we have behind us to, to do that, I think the faster adoption will go. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, are there successful use cases where we see uh, merchants accepting Bitcoin and and maybe it is kind of like a regular thing for them or they're actually they're actually it's actually really benefiting their business rather than just kind of like an ancillary cool thing that they do, which might be a bit gimmicky, um, but they're actually really, really benefiting from the value of the, that this is added to their business? Yeah, here uh, we host a uh regular meetups and events so we're constantly trying to bring groups of people to these same businesses repeatedly mm. and some of them have done a few thousand dollars worth of volume off us or mm. more and it's it's still a small percentage of their total sales sure but it's enough that it's it's i'd say it's worthwhile for them yeah and it's only going to get bigger yeah i mean that's exciting right and and that's that's what you know, that's also part of the conversation I'm sure you have with merchants with Coinos is that, you know, here's a bunch of merchants that have done it and, and you know, they can make a, a bit of extra cash that they, we shouldn't really say cash, I guess, but extra digital cash, uh, right? sure, extra digital cash, uh, it, which, which probably helps their business and the, and the fees involved that are, are low. It's effectively, it's effectively free in the sense that it doesn't cost them that, that extra couple percent in processing fees, which is expensive for merchants, especially when we're dealing with mass inflation, uh, really high employee retention costs. Um, you know, it's expensive to process anything. And so if you can reduce your cost of all sales by a couple percent, that might be the difference for a lot of businesses, whether they're actually making money each month or, or whether they're actually losing money. Yeah, and it's actually a great way to acquire Bitcoin if you, if you don't have any and you're thinking right. about investing in it. You're going to get the cheapest price by selling your services for Bitcoin yeah. versus taking the fiat that you earn and going to a exchange and buying it there. You're going to be paying that spread on yeah. the exchange. So. I actually, um, I rent out a parking spot in my driveway to a guy who's got a cool Volkswagen van. And I don't remember how it came up. Probably in the ad, I said, you know, I accept Bitcoin or something. And, uh, and he you know, coincidentally held some Bitcoin and knew how to buy it. And so he pays me every month in Bitcoin. And so I get a little bit of extra Bitcoin each month from from that little transaction, which is awesome for me because it just as you said, it's super easy. It's fast. It costs nothing. And uh, and I, I then don't have to go out and buy Bitcoin because I'm looking to acquire more and more Bitcoin um, every month. Yeah. So it's my kind of little dollar cost averaging into Bitcoin is by renting out my parking spot for Bitcoin. Good for you. I love it. Not so good for the other guy, but. <laughs> okay, so what role do you think that regulators play in this, especially when it comes to um, the adoption of, of Bitcoin as a payment solution? Um, are regulators involved now in Canada? Do they need to be involved? Where are we at? Yep, they're involved. Um, basically, we just wanted regulatory clarity. So. Mm. For a while, when I was getting into Bitcoin, I was trading, you know, cash deals, selling Bitcoin to people on the street. And 
it was questionable, like, is this legal? <laughs> do you have to be a registered money service business? Eventually they said, yes, you do. If you're doing it, you know, daily or as you know, you're making a decent amount of income off that, mm. you have to register. And then with merchants, they're always wondering about how does taxation work? Do I have to pay income tax on this? What else do I have to worry about with my accounting? And yes, you have to pay income tax. So when, when you sell something for Bitcoin, uh, it's going to have a dollar value and you just figure out, you know, what would you have received in dollars if you'd sold the same thing? And then that's what you claim on your income tax. And our system keeps track of all that. So mm. when, when you take a payment in, it's all denominated in dollars or whatever your local currency is. And it keeps that at the time of sale. What, what was it actually sold for? So you get a sense of uh, what, what you paid to acquire that Bitcoin. And then the one gotcha besides income tax is the capital gains tax, where if you go and sell that Bitcoin for a profit a year down the road, you also have to pay tax on the gain or 50% of the gain. So that's just something we will mention to people that, it, yeah, there is this one extra thing to worry about with your taxes. But if you just hold the Bitcoin and never sell it and you never incur that gain, then it's nothing to worry about. And I guess on the flip side, you can claim it as a loss as well. If you sell your Bitcoin, if Bitcoin has gone down in yes. value yep. you, and, you, and you do sell it because you need the cash or whatever, yep. then you do get to claim that as a loss yeah, and, and, and write off that, that forward. And, yeah. um, and so uh, that kind of brings you had mentioned um, you denominate in dollars or whatever the local currency is. Does that mean Coinos is available um, everywhere or in specific locations? Yeah, it's available everywhere in the world. And I think that's amazing in and of itself right there, right? Because if I want to deal with, if I'm a merchant and I want to accept payments, um, I'm going to deal with a payment processor that is a local um, or at least in, in our case, a Canadian payment processor um, who may be able to accept um, credit cards from lots of different places, but certainly not um, currencies from other places. And so this this does open up a global market, especially maybe to online retailers, eh? Yeah, yeah, online retailers. And another thing you mentioned, like who would benefit, really benefit from taking Bitcoin versus not taking it. I was going to mention also, there are certain industries that have trouble getting banking right? because they're taboo or they're just... Illegal. <laughs> Illegal. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, Bitcoin doesn't care. It's it's money. It's just a tool. And uh, it's like how criminals drive on the roads. We're not going to stop building roads. We're not going to, um, you know, stop selling video cameras to people because they could be used for illicit activities. Right. It's a tool and it's going to be used for good or for evil. But uh, the you know, the use of it itself or the tool itself is not the problem. It's the people that are committing the crimes. So yeah. don't try to regulate the, the tool and make it difficult for everyone else just because it may be used for things you don't agree with. I mean, it's like certainly more um, criminal activity is transacted in cash than it is in Bitcoin. That doesn't mean that um, cash inherently is bad. That's um, right. There's a lot of pros to having cash uh, or access to cash, hard, actual, physical cash. Um, and, I, and it seems like we certainly see a movement towards people holding actual physical cash for fear that uh, a government regulation. Um, do you have any thoughts on, uh, or I'm sure you do, but do you have any thoughts you want to share when it comes to uh, digital currencies that may be centrally controlled by some type of government or some type of bank or what we call typically CBDCs? Uh, I guess my... My view is they're they're no good. They're <laughs> so so why why do you think they're bad? Well, because uh, 
they can still be inflated and manipulated by central authorities and they add all this additional censorship and surveillance capability which is not a good thing you know we don't want to have a social credit kind of system where the government gets to decide what you get to spend your money on where you get to go who you get to associate with mm. all these freedoms that we still enjoy and and cherish we we need to hold on to those and fight to keep them so bitcoin is maybe the best best answer to overcome that because they're they're going to try to stop it they're going to try to say or at least regulate it to the point where it's not usable in its current form so they're going to say you can only withdraw your bitcoin to certain addresses that we approve of and that we have kyc'd and aml'd and that we know who the owner of that address is and you're not going to be able to get your money out of the exchange if you're trying to move it to your own personal yeah. non-custodial wallet that yeah. we don't know who the owner of that is but bitcoin is resilient it it's going to go to the jurisdictions that are the freest and those jurisdictions are going to thrive so it may have some bumps along the road where a few authoritarian regimes try to crush it for a while and it may get crushed in a few places but it's not going to get crushed globally mm. unless things go really really wrong <laughs> <laughs> like we don't have the internet or something to use um, even with that there's solutions to have more a more decentralized internet or mesh net where you're not just you know reliant on telus and rogers mm. or shaw to give you your internet you can connect to your neighbor and they can connect to the next town over using wireless antennas and is that a is, is that a realistic solution ham radio and things like this ham, wow okay it's <laughs> Yeah, it's viable. It's viable. I, I've actually worked on some mesh net projects and the technology for people to interconnect rather than going through like a hub and spoke model mm -hmm. through big ISPs is definitely viable. And crypto is going to help uh, with the incentives there so that if you're sharing your bandwidth with your neighbors, you could charge them by the gigabyte in real time to use a part of your connection. Right. And you can relay that connection from whoever is giving it to you and spread it out further. So are you talking about the Helium network? Helium was one. I actually worked for a company called Althea, which okay. I really like. Unfortunately, they never adopted Bitcoin as the payment. Right. They're using Ethereum and now okay. they're developing their own coin. But yeah. um, that technology, that concept of yeah. incentivized mesh net really makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Like I have a couple Helium... I guess they're not really called miners, nodes. Yeah. And, um, but the thing is, is that they still rely on my internet connection. You know, like without my TELUS internet connection, uh, there is no network for me to kind of mesh. I don't really know what the terms are. Yeah, someone needs uh, to connect to the broader internet and that's called the, the backhaul. Okay. And you can rent a cabinet in a data center downtown here um pay a couple hundred bucks a month and then you can connect to a bunch of other isps and networks mm. big, big data companies from around the world so you don't have to be connected through just these couple of commercial isps right. oh interesting you can be your own isp yeah oh, that's... someone has to pay a little bit extra to get that right kind of 
big connection, uh-huh. but then they can spread it out to everyone else. Wow. Okay. Um, how do you, as a libertarian, grapple with the idea that, okay, well, we need regulate, regulatory clarity in order to operate Bitcoin in the jurisdiction in which you live in. Um, you seem to respect and appreciate that that has to happen. But Actually, uh, I'll back up on okay, that. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> I, could, I could operate fine with no regulatory clarity. Okay. But some people desire it and aren't okay. going to touch Bitcoin unless it's there. So I think as a whole, you know, for Bitcoin to gain mass adoption, it's, that's going to help it. But I'm I'm kind of anti-regulation. Okay. Like I'm a free market kind of yeah. guy, right? Like I think we could self-regulate. Okay. I mean, that's effectively, I guess, what I'm asking is like when you talk about that, and, and I've heard that with, from other um, libertarians in Bitcoin, it's like they don't want regulation, but I guess they recognize or we recognize that without some type of guidance or regulation, um, most people can't, they can't get there without that. And, and that's kind of what you're saying. Am I right? Yeah. There needs to be something of a framework or most, a lot of people won't get involved in it. And at at the current time, yeah. But okay. you know, if if Bitcoin keeps growing slowly and it's just us, kind of fringe people that want to to deal with it or are taking the risk of dealing it with, with it without regulatory certainty, um, it is going to slowly eat the world, right? So the governments of the world are going to have less of a tax base. They're going to find it harder to enforce taxation when everyone's using Bitcoin. Just Practically, it's going to be hard to track and yeah. follow up with people to say that whether they're underreporting their income and things like this. So, and like I was saying, jurisdictions that are more free and require less tax, the Bitcoiners and the economy is going to flood there. So, those places are going to become more prosperous and successful over time because they've adopted the less regulatory approach and allowed it to just flourish and thrive on its own. And then over time, yeah, these other authoritarian countries that are trying to squash it or trying to overregulate it, they're going to find themselves holding less Bitcoin in their coffers mm. and they're going to be worse off for it. And they're eventually going to uh, be extinguished, I think, because, you know, people are just going to move and leave and they're going to find that they're suffering in these places because they don't have that economic freedom. So what happens so let's say we do see kind of a slow slow uptick in in bitcoin adoption around the world government's revenues go down because they can't tax bitcoin as easily and people are under reporting and all of the things you laid out how do we get roads and rec centers and how do we how do we deal with the infrastructure we rely on from government today what what actually happens um yeah so this is where voluntarism or austrian economics the free market libertarianism all these terms that you might hear have offered solutions to this kind of thing where uh, we can have voluntary associations, charities, societies, groups of people that get together. They still have boards of people that make decisions. They still have hierarchies and structure, um, but they operate on a meritocracy rather than a monopoly that's enforced by violence or (laughs) forced taxation they get their funding because people want the services they provide and they do the best job at it in the market. Mm. So they're the most competitive, they do it the most efficiently, 
So if I need a road built, I'm going to look up and find who's got the five-star rating as a road builder that's close to my town that I need to build these roads. And people are going to hire those, you know, construction companies to come in. And then they're going to, you know, cover the cost somehow by voluntarily saying, everyone in the neighborhood, if you want to use these roads, let's all chip in. Pay a fee. Pay a fee. You can have tolls. You can have... <clears throat> neighborhood associations, homeowner associations, all these things that are sort of like tax, where you're paying into a pot and you're getting these group services done, but it's you can opt out, right? No one's going to say, hey, you, you have to do this or you're going to jail. It's if you don't want to pay, then you can't use the road. You can go and build your own road, but we're not saying you're going to jail. Yeah. Yeah. I remember here in Vancouver, we had a big bridge built, uh, the Portman Bridge, which is a toll bridge uh, at the time. And um, the the socialist government that we have in power removed the toll. Um, you know, and, and I thought it was kind of interesting because a lot of people, especially in the northern part of the province, which is like 15 or 20 hour drive away, don't ever use the bridge. Once the toll was removed, their taxes are effectively now paying for something that they they don't use and so the kind of like the fee-based system um that tolls kind of have are almost like a step in that direction would you agree with that yeah i think having granularity at the level of people should only be paying for the things that they use Mm. and that they want and trying to get it down like having water metering is another thing right like People in North Van, they can just use as much water as they want or not, and the water restrictions come in. The district says, hey, everyone stop watering your lawns on these days and Mm -hmm. stuff. But it's like, well, I might be willing to pay a little bit more because I really want to water my garden a little bit more. And, you know, trying to, um, yeah, have, have the mechanism where you, you can pay at smaller, finer details for things, even when you're pumping gas, if it's like the precision that we charge people for things needs to get finer and finer. And, Mm. and, uh, with micropayments and crypto that that's going to help facilitate that too. I think. How do we deal with the volatility of the price of Bitcoin going up? I mean, sometimes it can change a a half a percent or percent a day. Sometimes it could change maybe 10% in a day. Um, So how does that, maybe not how do we deal with it, but how does that impact the likelihood of Bitcoin becoming a source of payments for people? Um, Right now it's, it's still quite volatile, but we are already using it as a source of payments because the exchange rate is coming in real time. We update it every second. Mm. So we're reading what is the price of Bitcoin trading on live on the markets. And when you go to take a payment in your store, it's going to look it up every second and charge the customer exactly what the market rate is. So that's already not too much of an issue in terms of using it for payments. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, volatility always comes up. People say that's something that scares them off of investing into it. And my response to that is, well, yeah, it's, it's volatile, like, like, I guess I'll go this way for you. Sure. Like, this is how volatile it is, right? It's yeah. like bouncing up and down, up and down, but it's trending upwards. And that curve is going to level out once the market cap gets bigger and bigger. Right. Because it's going to take more uh, influx of capital or outflux of capital to move the market because yeah. the market is bigger. So yeah. as 
Bitcoin is established as like the global monetary unit, it's going to be a quadrillion dollar market instead of a billion dollar or hundred billion dollar or whatever it is now. Yeah. So do you think that um, BlackRock ETF and these types of big organizations getting into Bitcoin are a to a benefit of Bitcoin? Um, yeah, because they're going to bring in capital that's going to trigger another bull run and that's going to bring more attention back to it. And that's going to, you know, keep the ball rolling, <laughs> make it go bigger. More people are going to switch. Yeah. You know, put their savings into that, sell their house, sell their car, put it into Bitcoin because it's going up. And yeah, a lot of it is going to be held by this big evil corporation, but not for long, right? Like, um, it will get into the hands of more people that way. And because they have the option of taking full custody of it as like a, a bearer asset, mm -hmm. where you don't have to trust some institutional custodian. Um, if they do any kind of funny business, or even if people just get the word out and say, hey, don't trust these guys because they might do something bad. Yeah. It's going to be trivial for you to move it to your own wallet that they you know, can't manipulate. Yeah. So. Yeah. That's, yeah. It's going to be interesting to see how that comes up to play at the time of recording right now, the, um, ETFs, uh, there's been no spot ETFs, uh, approved in the United States at this point for Bitcoin or Ethereum. And it seems like maybe we're on the right, moving in the right direction when you have an organization like BlackRock who seemingly has, um, their connections into the SEC, you would think that it's probably going to get approved and, uh, we might be moving in the right direction. Um, I've interviewed, um, Double Sharma, who's a lawyer for Coinbase and um, who was involved in the application and um, seems to uh, seems to think that uh, that it's going to be approved um, in the next couple of months. So it'll be interesting to see how it goes. Yep. Um, it's been really interesting talking to you, Adam. I've really enjoyed our conversation. I think it's been super helpful to, to get your understanding. Interesting to hear your story of how things uh, what things looked like back in 2011 when you got involved. Thanks so much for being with me here today. Thanks for having me.